Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. I'm John Bodhorts, the editor of Commentary, asking you again to consider Commentary Magazine, the Commentary Podcast, the Commentary website as part of your annual giving. Commentary is a 501c3 nonprofit, and while we do earn a considerable amount of money from our wonderful subscribers and from the advertisers who help support this podcast and the magazine. We do have a significant deficit beyond that, and we rely on elemosinary generosity from people in the commentary community to help us close that deficit and continue to do what we are, what we are doing and what we what the magazine has been doing now for seventy six years. I would be immensely grateful if you would think of us in this way, and uh, you can go to www.commentary.org slash donate to do so. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, The... Congress is now moving on two bills, uh, important bills, one to raise the debt limit and the other to authorize defense spending for the next fiscal year. Uh, The defense spending bill, having lost a couple of demented provisions, is now sailed through the House and will sail through the Senate. One of the demented provisions being uh, drafting women, uh, which uh, we can at some later point go into why it's insane to do. to even bring that up, but um, uh, the the debt limit provision uh, allows is a is a trick uh, because it allows a one time suspension of the filibuster for debt limit. Here, here's what they have to do: they vote that it's okay for this one time for the debt limit to pass the Senate with a majority vote. They vote on a rule that allows that to happen. For that rule, you need 60 votes. So it will allow Republicans to vote 60 to it will allow the bill to get 60 votes so that this one time the debt limit can be passed with 50 votes plus Kamala Harris. So Republicans can vote yes on the rule and no on the bill. And you've heard of this before because it was, of course, the notorious moment at which John Kerry once said that he had voted for the 87 billion before he voted against it. Uh, this is a, a, a Senate game of longstanding and that very much the sort of thing that causes people to think that politics sucks and they're right. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fun maneuver to allow Republicans plausible deniability for having raised the debt limit on the Biden budget that they don't like, even though most of the debt incurred by the, that requiring a lifting of the debt limit involves policies that predate the Biden administration. Um, But uh, this was a way for Mitch McConnell to herd his cats. Republicans who didn't want to vote, don't want to vote for the debt limit increase, can vote for a rule that allows for a lower threshold for a vote on the debt limit increase. So is this the sort of thing that's good because it means that things get done and we move on? Or is it bad because it increases the level of cynicism that people properly regard Washington's machinations with? It's bad. It's bad for a variety of reasons. So first of all, is this a sort of an abrogation of what I thought was uh, McConnell's strategy 
back in late October when they agreed to a temporary um, pushing of the debt limit back to December 3. Um, <clears throat> or, you know, I, th I think it was a week ago, but I don't even remember. But the, the, the idea was that you can do this via reconciliation. You need to do this via reconciliation. We're not going to help you do this outside of reconciliation. Well, you should explain what that means. So the reconciliation process is a very arcane legislative process that you can only do a handful of times a year. I think it's twice. I don't remember. Um, but it's a budgetary provision, and that's where they're trying to do this Build Back Better resolution. And all these different things have to come out of different committees, et cetera, and so forth. But it's a budgetary uh, rule. And McConnell's strategy was to say, listen, you can do this via reconciliation. Raise the debt limit on your own. We're not going to help you, especially if you want to spend $3 trillion extra dollars in the process. So go do it on your own. And you can do it in December, and we'll help you this one time, and we'll push it off. That's what I thought the strategy was, and it was always going to be you know, difficult. Um, but that's what I understood the strategy to be. And this is not that strategy. The second is it's an, whether it's a one-time dispensation or not, it's an erosion of the legislative filibuster. Just is. Um, it's, it's conceivable now to do this, this thing, we can do this other thing in the future. I mean, it just extend, expands the terms of engagement um, that allows the legislative filibuster to, um, to be eroded uh, as, a, as a convention for block for, for minority protections in the Senate. So I don't like it. I understand why they have to do it or they feel they have to do it, but I don't love it. Um, it, it this is what the Senate is and this is what the Senate does. And this is how it manages to, you know, uh, get things done the way it gets things done. Bob Dole, you know, of course, who passed away on, on Sunday. Uh, one of the reasons that it was very, it's, it's been very difficult classically for Senate leading figures in the Senate to become president as the carry example of the 87 billion indicates is that there's a lot of gamesmanship that goes on and McConnell is a master of gamesmanship. So what he wanted to do was establish the notion that what he was doing when he said, you have to do this with the reconciliation process was say, we're not going to vote. No Republican is going to vote for this bill. Therefore, how do you get it done? You have to do it with reconciliation because you can vote. Reconciliation is the one procedure in the Senate, aside from judicial nominations, that does not require a 60 vote cloture ending of a debate that leads to a vote on the floor. Um, so we now have an exception to the rule that it's only judicial nominations and reconciliation. There is now this one-time exception to the rule. It is almost impossible to create a philosophical structure to explain why this difference is, is, is not just a difference in degree as opposed to a difference in principle. They are effectively, the Republicans who vote for the rule are effectively voting for increasing the debt limit. While attempting to go around and deny that they voted to increase the debt limit. But that's that, my that's my objection to it. I think you're absolutely right. But from a political standpoint, they'll still argue that they didn't they didn't approve the spending. Right. And they can do this because most Americans don't follow the arcane details of Senate rules. They follow, you know, at a much uh, 30,000 foot level versus on the ground level. And I think they will. Uh, it, it really only comes up. You mentioned the John Kerry statement. It really only comes up when there's some sort of uh, prosecutorial debate style questioning of someone's record. And that's probably not going to happen uh, with with many of these Republicans. They can go back and say, this is too much spending. We were against it. You know, we had to negotiate in this way. But, you know, the the 
the takeaway message that McConnell's hoping he can still make and that his members can still make is that they oppose the spending. This is the interesting sort of moment because this happens every couple of years, some, you know, weird gambit game. The entire debt limit game is itself a game um, that should probably be ended. What the Democrats are going to do with the debt limit is push it forward for a year past the next election. Um, it supposedly incurs discipline somehow to have to cast these votes. Clearly, there is no discipline. We have just increased the size of the national debt over the last five years by some ungodly amount uh, and no fact, no no voting on the increase of the debt limit over time has ever helped uh, retard the size of the growth of government, right? Or the growth of the size of government, excuse me. So I don't know why this pageant continues, you know, either either don't have a debt limit or live within the debt limit pretending that you're living within the debt limit when you don't live within the debt limit is is preposterous. And yeah, I mean, I guess it gives Republicans the opportunity to claim on the campaign trail that that they are the party of, you know, that wants to limit Washington spending since it that they don't really approve of a lot of the spending that went on. But of course, they approved of plenty of the spending that went on during the Trump years and didn't complain about that. So I I don't know. It's um. Well, they're not the party of default now, right? That's the that's the label that they didn't want right. going into the holiday uh, electioneering period to be labeled as. They're not right. going to be blamed for a default, right? Right. But it it actually shows you what a what a cynical legislative genius McConnell is, because in the end, it's not that he's even saving Chuck Schumer's bacon. Chuck Schumer being an uncommonly bad majority leader, it appears, as um, Matt Continetti says in an article in the upcoming issue of Commentary, which should be out on Monday. Um, you know, this is like a gift. It's like a talent for something you, you, you'll never know if you have until you until you actually emerge as the majority leader. Like there are people who really know how to do this and people who don't know how to do this. And it's very clear that Schumer doesn't know how to do this. And this was not his solution. It was McConnell's solution to the problem. McConnell is coming in and keeping the government in good working order, uh, despite uh, Schumer's sillinesses and inability to figure out how to how to maneuver in the very weird political situation that he finds himself in. So, um, uh, you know, I don't know. Schumer's not exactly in McConnell's debt, let's say, but um, but he was outplayed. Uh, actually. And uh, although I think Noah, you might think otherwise, because he said, we want you to use reconciliation, then they didn't use reconciliation. But again, it's a degree, it's a, as Christine would say, who's going to make these distinctions? Like these are, these are distinctions. They're like, um, you know, they're like uh, kashrut distinctions. If you know the rules of keeping kosher, it's like, well, it's three hours before you can eat ice cream, or is it six hours before you can eat ice cream? And the, the, you you can't drive on the Sabbath, but you can if this happens or that happens. Like it's like, unless you study this for your entire life, your life, and are you know consumed with the with the with the specific rules, you're never going to sort of entirely get it all straight or understand the underpinnings of it. So, uh, and so the that that's that's where we are. But at least basically, the defense budget is going to be uh, the defense budget is going forward, and interestingly. Um, larger than the Biden administration wanted it. And that is not because of Republicans. That is because of Democrats. 
who want more spending on cybersecurity and want more spending uh, as a symbol, help us move on to our next topic, uh, a symbol to Vladimir Putin and to President Xi that we are not leaving the, not only the battlefield of ideas, but the sort of global battlefield of, uh, you know, power projection. Well, I mean, but the fact that Biden wanted to keep the military spending flat is another indication of of um, just how out of touch he is with what's going on right now. We're talking about at a time when we, uh, China's military buildup and spending is unprecedented. Russia's building up and 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 marshaling forces and. Both bad actors are testing you know, space weapons and technology, and we're withdrawing physically uh, from 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 the battlefield, and and we're not going to ramp up militarily. I mean, yeah, thank thank God we did. Um, uh, but, well, wow. I mean, it's, it's, I think, it's, that, it's yeah, but to me. <clears throat> but the, was that's the whole point? We're leaving Afghanistan. We should be able to spend less money, and you know, spend that money here at home. Invest. In America, we need to invest in America with, you know, childcare provisions that cost people twice as much as they would otherwise because the childcare centers need to be unionized or whatever. Anyway, so there's going to be a defense budget. There'll be a debt limit uh, raised. And uh, and uh, then, but if you, I, I just to get back to our favorite subject, if you listen to Joe Manchin talking this week, I mean, I don't know why they're even going to pretend that they're going to get why they're going to pretend to go through a two-month process trying to get Build Back Better, the social big social bill passed, because he is not voting for it. He had, he gave this uh, talk on Monday in which he said, ah, they're saying they want this for one year. They want this for three years. They want, they're going to spend on this for four years. They didn't reduce the size of the package. They're just playing games with how much money is going to be, you know, is going to be authorized to be spent on all this stuff. And, you know, once you create these things, they don't go away. Their lobbies are da, 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 da. he is not voting for that bill. So I hope we spend three months, you know, debating this so that then it fails the way that the Clinton health care bill failed in 1994. And basically is this, you know, on the one hand, will incredibly will depress Democrats who really want it and will basically depress Democrats who didn't want it, who are who are seeing their own party sort of go down with the ship and then make independents look at them like you guys don't know what the hell you're doing. You're like ridiculous and incompetent. We voted for you this time and we're embarrassed by how stupid you are. Or is there another, is there another uh, scenario anybody can see? Well, the, it seems to me that the Democrats are doing a short term. They're sacrificing a long term win for short term gains by again. And I, we've, we've seen this multiple times, but they want to look like they're doing something. We're moving forward. We're going to do all this stuff for you. We're in, and yet because of Manchin, they really aren't. But again, I don't think people necessarily follow that. Maybe they think they can persuade him. Um, I'm with you, John. I don't think it's going to happen. And that's a good thing. But the, the disaster coming a few months from now, when it's clear that it won't happen, is something they either are in denial about or, or just plan to deal with the consequences of later. For now, they want to show that they're doing all this stuff and so that they can go back to constituents and say, look at all this stuff we're trying to do for you while the Republicans block it. They're terrible. They're the Grinch that stole Christmas from you. We're trying to put, you know, money on the table for all these important things you say you want, which, of course, many of the American people don't want. But that's another issue. 
No, it's the same issue. It's exactly the same issue. It's not a different issue. They're replaying the exact same playbook they, they used in 2010, saying, oh, they're obstructionists, they're extremists, when that's exactly what their voters want. And their voters outnumber Democratic voters by every metric, by every objective polling metric we have right now, that their voters are saying, stand athwart history yelling, stop, and we will reward you. And Democrats are pointing and going, they're standing athwart history. Well, yeah, that's the whole point, isn't it? Well, you know, it's not just that. It's also they have this idea that it's like there are 99 senators who want the Build Back Better bill, and there's one or maybe two, Cinema uh, along with Manchin, who don't want it, and it's not fair. It's one person who's blocking it. It's not one person. It's 51 people. Republicans are in the Senate, too. If you were in the minority in the Senate, you were still a powerful force. That's actually not so true in the House, but it is true in the Senate. It's the peculiarity or the nature or the structure of the Senate. And so they do not have a consensus to spend $2 trillion in new, in new money or to spend whatever they say the deficit is going to be increased by $367 billion or whatever that number of course being fudged and made up because as Manchin says they're ginning they're playing with the numbers by claiming that certain programs will sunset after three years or one year or five years or four years or two years another great um democratic game by the way because we saw this in 1994 when they wanted to add 100,000 new cops and what they what that meant was that they were going to provide subsidies for local police departments to hire cops but those subsidies were only going to last for three years, at which point the local police departments were going to be on the hook for all the cops that they had hired. So it's a it's a it's a it's an interesting bait. It's an interesting federal government bait and switch to impose mandates on states or localities um, uh, and to like, you know, it's like you, you you pay for them a little bit to get them like they really want them. And then they start having getting union benefits and they 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 have seniority provisions and this and that. And then you can't get rid of them. So I, you know, the, again, this is this is all classic old time cynical politics. There's one way in which I am moved a little bit by the fact that we've come back to this because um, uh, the Trump years were so weird and the policies that were being laid out were so peculiarly structured and arranged and often, you know, in this kind of um, I don't know, uh, just throw it at the wall and see what would stick so we could get a tax cut or we could have this or we could have that. Um, uh, and, and it, it, you know, I know a lot of people love that kind of creative chaos, but at least here what we have is, uh, you know, a, a sort of return to a certain type of working order that if you're a Burkean, you like because we have institutions, they have structures, they have ways they do things. This fits in the way that they do things if you don't want them all just destroyed totally. So I started out with the cynicism and saying this is bad because it's not, you know, they're 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 saying they're voting against it, but they're actually voting for it. And on the other hand, you know, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. Like politics is a vice ridden game. And if you try to like make it look like you're playing within the rules, you're at least you're at least paying tribute to the idea that you should mean what you say, even if you don't mean what I mean, you say. That's that is kind of the the criticism of the of the Trump supporter. It's like, you know, pe the people who support the establishment are upset that that, you know, uh, 
that the cynical game is being broken up, you know. That's uh, true. Yeah, yeah. And they have and there's also there's this element of the hubris of Dem- we've talked about this many times, but the hubris that the surprise majority in the Senate delivered to the Democratic Party, because I think a lot of this would not have happened this way. They would have had to recognize those the other half of the Senate that is not represented and does not uh, uh, embrace the views that they're trying to push on the American people in the way that old time politics always had. But there there's two things at play. One is that they they got the surprise majority after the Georgia election. But the other thing is that their left flank is is actually, John, very actively arguing the anti burkean position, saying all of these arcane rules, and they love to call them arcane rules, are a hindrance to our progress, and we should try to get rid of them, or we should expose them for being, in, right. in their own way, a kind of cynical ploy to get rid of the things that that our system, the beauty of our system places on these people, which is to say, stop, slow down, you must negotiate. They want to get rid of that. Right. And so they should be they should be opposed. And this is well, this is a way structurally to oppose them. Um the, the argument of the Trump voter that it's terrible that these institutions are being, you know, broken up is fine. It's, it's a perfectly fine argument. What do you replace them with? That's always where they fall short because they don't want to do they want to go. They want to give a press conference and say everything should be destroyed. Then they want to go off to dinner, do a hit on Fox and then, you know, and then go uh, dance or shoot a gun or something like that. That's what they want to do. They they don't want to do the hard work of if you're actually going to supplant an institution with new institutional rules, you got to write those rules and it's boring and it's a slog and it's annoying and you have to fight for control of the institution in a technical way so that you can rewrite the rules and get the rules in the way you want them and then and then put in place sub rules that support the rules that you want. And that's not what any of these people do. Not only is that not what they do, but they would happily and readily engage in all types of uh, cynical machinations themselves uh, if it if it meant uh, getting one of their policies or or uh, what was some some issue that they support uh, across. Exactly. Now let me ask you this: Did you ever read the fine print that appears when you start browsing in incognito mode? It says that your activity might still be visible to your employer, to your school, or to your internet service provider. How can they even call it incognito to really stop people from seeing the sites you visit? You need to do what I do and use ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you use Wi-Fi at a coffee shop, a hotel, at your parents' house. Without ExpressVPN, every site you visit could be logged by the admin of that network, leaving you exposed even when you're in incognito mode. How many of you really want your parents to see what you've been looking at? And that doesn't even touch on the risks that come with the sinister people interested in your info. What's more... Your home internet provider can also see and record your browsing data. And in the U.S., they're legally allowed to sell that data to advertisers. With all that in mind, it's good to know that there's an app like ExpressVPN, which encrypts all of my network data, reroutes it through a network of secure servers so that my private online activity stays just that private. ExpressVPN works on all devices. Couldn't be easier to use. The app literally has one button. You tap it to connect. Your browsing activity is secure from prying eyes. So stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash commentary. Use my link at expressvpn.com slash commentary to get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. And let's talk about Moinkbox. Okay. Do you want a free year of ground beef? You can get it from Moinkbox. And you know what that ground beef is? It's grass fed. It's grass finished beef 
They also have lamb, pasture, pork, and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon sent direct to your door. This Moink Box service helps family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture because they're raising their animals outdoors. Their fish are swimming wild in the ocean. Moink meat free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com commentary to get a year of ground beef for free. And then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel any time. Why are 97% of the chicken served in the U.S. dipped in chlorine? Simple, because big food doesn't have the same quality standards as the family farm. That's why you need moinkbox.com. Founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now. And listeners to the show get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste. But for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. Joe Biden had a phone call with Vladimir Putin yesterday, and there were various readouts of the call, mostly from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who uh, saber rattled, I think. I mean, he said, there are things we are prepared to do today in response to any Russian move on Ukraine that we were not prepared to do in 2014, the last time that the Soviet Union moved uh, territorially on on Ukraine. We know that some of this is uh, financial, some of it is cyber. Um, Noah's of the opinion has generally been of the opinion that all that is all well and good, but without some kind of a military threat, and maybe the cyber functions as a military threat, but but without a military threat, this will all seem hollow if Putin is is uh, is set on on actually making these moves. Noah, what did you what did you make of yesterday's proceedings? Uh, I I didn't find it particularly convincing. Um, cyber does not function as, as a deterrent effect because this, the the cyber environment is hot. It's live. It's hot. There are no rules of engagement. It is constantly a series of tests uh, of one side or the other. <clears throat> which is part of the reason why it is such a dangerous environment because there's ample room for miscalculation there. But unless we're willing to shut down the power grid in Moscow, to which Moscow would respond uh, in kind because they have those capabilities, uh, it is not a deterrent threat. A deterrent threat would be moving a lot of naval assets into the Black Sea. A lot of a deterrent threat would be moving a lot of area denial assets into uh, Eastern Europe, uh, moving a division to the border of Poland. Um, uh, quite, a, quite a display of potential force. Um, which this administration has not signaled, in my view, they are prepared to do, even if even obliquely or implied, uh, they have said rather uh, plainly that their tools are economic entirely. The mother of all sanctions, according to Senator Menendez, which was a construction I developed as a way of mocking the nonsense coming out of this administration that cutting off access to the SWIFT international payment system, uh, something I had not heard of before it became a tool in the toolbox to uh, deter Russia from doing that which it had already done. And the nonsense that coming out of uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, who, by the way, was in the administration the last time this happened. So, oh, okay, now we're prepared to do something. Really? It would be a real terrible shame if we had the exact same crew who presided over the last violation of European sovereignty for the first time since 1945 in the in office and occupying a very similar position as he did last time. That would be a tragedy. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not convinced. Abe, got any uh, got any hawkish reflections? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm virtually on the exact same page as no. Yeah, I, I don't think he, there was saber rattling at all. It was it was uh, sanction rattling. 
um, you know, the, the idea that um, the, the toughest thing that we can do, that we can barely countenance ha having to do would, 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 be, this, would be to, uh, to deny them the, 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 swift, the swift banking uh, 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 system is, um, I think, tells you everything. I mean, yeah, we're also talking about um, giving more material to to Ukraine and to and to uh, other other uh, of of Russia's neighbors and to getting Europe on board. We know how that goes uh, for sanctions. So yeah, I, I'm I'm with Noah completely. I think it's very weak. I, I'm I'm sure we don't even know the the, the weakest aspects of of the of uh, Biden's. All, yesterday. all of this is the, the, it it's the, the assumption here is predicated on the idea, and it's all cons consistent across this administration and in the Senate, that if Russia does something bad, we will respond. That's not how deterrence works. That's, that's punitive. That doesn't deter any action. It responds to action. All of a sudden, we've forgotten how deterrence works. Deterrence is preemptive, preventative. And that's a dirty word among well, uh, people who lived through the Iraq war. But that's how we do this sort of thing and prevent the worst from occurring. Raise but, the costs of action to the point at which they are not absorbable. OK, not but that, that that is in theory what's going on here is deterrence, right? I mean, that, that this is public deterrence. We are saying don't do this or we're, or, or we, we will, will respond. No, right. we will respond now. OK, but OK, uh, we've all been making fun of the swift banking system thing um maybe it's more serious than we're letting i mean this is how almost all international transactions um travel uh beyond borders and so one of the costs of this is often true of sanctions is that it will hit it won't hit putin who has money all over the world that he can presumably access in whatever way but it could hit ordinary Russians who have money abroad that they can no longer reach and will, you know, cause severe economic hardship, which I don't know, maybe it'll make trouble for Putin or maybe it won't. Like ordinarily when an authoritarian's population is hit with trouble from abroad uh, in the form of these kinds of sanctions, they both they survive. And they have a ready-made target to say your life is being made worse, not by me, but by these terrible outsiders. Um, well, and they, they Putin has another way of doing that. And he's already obviously preparing it and not just with 70,000 troops massed on the border of Ukraine. He can point to Ukraine and he can point to our support of Ukraine. He can there, there's a whole narrative that he's going to be able to sell to his people that says your suffering is not my fault. I'm active. It's all of these people. And and it does seem from what the readouts and, and discussion of the of the what two hour conversation went, we really have no new information from the conversation Biden had with Putin about his intentions in Ukraine. And that's very worrisome considering the amount of troops he's already massed on the border and, and other signals we've seen about internal, the, 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 the killing, the shooting blamed on a nationalist in, inside of Russia, the kinds of setup for war that we saw a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, Christine's referring to, you know, uh, there was a, a terrible shooting in Moscow, uh, and uh, Putin loves to use uh, claims of inter international provocation uh, caused by nationalist terror, anti-Russian nationalist terrorists to give him the means and the, and the, and the motive and the opportunity to move on, uh, you know, make conventional military moves. That is the 
I think it's now the considered opinion of the West that the famous uh, Chechen terrorist seizure of the theater in Moscow that led to hundreds of deaths that then, you know, provoked that war uh, was a was a false flag, was in fact uh, Putin's creating a, a Cassus Belli. Um, I don't know if it's ever been proved. Most people now seem to think that that was that was the case, and it was a lesson in just how um, how ruthless, savage, and Machiavellian he he can be. Yes, well, let's, let's I, I have to I have to say I think you know even were if Joe Biden were to do the the kinds of things that Noah is talking about right now, uh, I think under normal circumstances, yes, that would that would be the right move. Um, if Biden did it, I think it would almost be more disastrous at this point because. Putin would know at, for a certainty that it's a bluff. Um, he would, if, if Biden put all those things in place, I think Putin would go go about his merry way in any event. Possible, impossible. But and, and to their credit, we should say that the Biden administration has made some noises about uh, augmenting the the American troop presence and, and force presence in in this theater. Um, but whether Joe Biden wants to or not, their presence in the theater represents a deterrence because it's tripwire. It's very dangerous. Whole lot of assets in the, in a small place, all you know, with guns going off in every direction, has the potential for miscalculation, which is why you don't move. The potential for miscalculation represents a check on your actions. Uh, just the very also, presence alone is is a deterrent. I mean, we we should also take note of the fact that Sullivan explicitly mentioned um, doing something to derail the Nord Stream two pipeline uh, that would. Um, carry uh oil that was Russia insanely hilarious into germany well why why well, we should explain why it's insanely hilarious <laughs> because <laughs> they approved bizarre. they approved the continuation they of didn't the Nord approve Street. it per I, se they didn't what happened it. was yeah. is that is the, the 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 construction had been halted on this thing for two years in observance of the fact that america had very strong sanctions against anyone who who participated in the construction of this thing joe biden takes office in january in january russia restarts construction to- total threat Total, total bluff. And Biden blinked. They waived sanctions on the companies that were doing business with Russia constructing this pipeline, up to and including bending over backwards to find loopholes in the legislation that does not exist. Um, but in order to, to just, they just blinked. They just gave them what they wanted here. And now they're saying, well, we're going to put a lot of pressure on Germany to shut down this pipeline that we just basically allowed, tacitly approved of by looking the other direction. Uh, it is, it is, yeah, that's that's a that's a, a, a paper tiger. That's an empty threat. Okay, so <clears throat> as we approach the holidays, today being December eighth, it is really time for you to get those stocking stuffers in your hands. And the best one I can offer you is David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths. A book for any conservative, any liberal, anybody who wants to understand the interplay of economics, faith, and liberty, and how the three are intertwined. David, a longtime friend of this podcast, head of the Bonson Group, the multi-billion dollar financial services and management firm by Coastal, uh, uh, very intellectually minded guy, has assembled 251 page summaries of uh, economic realities supported by quotes from great thinkers and and uh, and and great writers and um, offers uh, a, a bit by bit page by page uh, expression of the fact that uh, liberty needs to be supported by 
faith and um, uh, economics is a description of the world, not an effort to change the world. And the world that it describes is a world in which the workings of the Almighty are expressed through human flourishing and liberty. So that is what you get from There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, go wherever you find books and buy it for your friends, buy it for your family, put it in that stocking. You will thank me. You know how hard it is to find presents. You know how hard it is to find, like, not the big present, but the little present or the just the perfect present. This is the perfect such present. So that's There's No Free Lunch by David Bonson. Uh, I think we're all uh, amused by the fact that um, Ms. Omarova, whose name, first name we are having trouble figuring out how to pronounce. It's either Sola, Solia, Saul, better call Solly. Because uh, it's spelled like better called Saul, but with an E on the end. Uh, Omarova, the nominee for the controller of the currency, has withdrawn her nomination uh, after revelations that she basically said she was a Marxist. She uh, grew up in the Soviet Union, went attended Moscow State University, only came to the West uh, in her 20s, I guess, and um, basically brought with her... Um, a radical uh, economic stance that uh, somehow led her inexorably into the idea that she should be the controller of the currency of the United States. And our friend Tom Cotton and others uh, noted the discrepancy between uh, the the ideas that she held and just like what it means to be an American, <laughs> patriotic American, uh, and a believer in the uh, financial system in which under which America runs itself. Um, and now there is an effort to say that this was red baiting. She was red baited and this, this is, this is red baiting. Well, you know what, if she was red baited, uh, that's cause she's a red, uh, red baiting usually refers to people who are falsely accused of being a red and aren't a red. I mean, so let's say she's not necessarily a member, formal member of the communist party, uh, certainly hearing and uh, noting things she has said in the past indicates that, um, even if she were not a native of the former Soviet Union and educated uh, in Marxism throughout her entire life uh, in schools, that um, that she would still, if she were born here in America and had been raised in, you know, a one-room schoolhouse with a picket fence and a, you know, a, and a school marm teacher in a gingham dress and came out and had these ideas, she would also be unsuitable to be controller of the currency. There's a weird, weird uh, reversal of what used to be a kind of interesting narrative uh, among people who came to this country from the former Soviet Union in particular. They would come here if they achieved any position of public power, which many did, or intellectual might, which many did. That was a way for them to talk about a contrast between the system they had fled that often persecuted them for, for factors that over which they had no control and the, and, and the free country they now lived in. And the, the, the dissident culture was extremely good for Americans to support and embrace because it, it allowed a reflection of their own society that they were off, that they often took for granted and that they often uh, didn't articulate in quite the same way. It's interesting to me to see that now we have the reverse. We have the people coming from a system that was clearly failing and, and authoritarian and awful and saying, yeah, the, there were all these good things about economics that they did there. Like, I, I, I cannot 
reject that. She wouldn't reject that system. Like that's the system that we know to have been oppressive to its own people. And yet she's like, oh, there's some good here. Let, let, let's throw that at our system. And and no, it's not that I'm asking her to, to disavow where she came from, but it's it, it just struck me that she really had very little good to say about our system, even though she'd come here and, and made a career for herself here. It is more it is a problem on both sides of the aisle, obviously, but it strikes me as more pronounced on the, the left um, that this effort to actively not understand what happened here is the imperative. We have places like The New York Times saying banking lobbyists and Republicans painted her as a communist because she was born in the Soviet Union, not because of what she said during confirmation hearings and what she has written about and thought about and, and acted on throughout her career. You're trying to preserve a misapprehension of your adversaries. It applies across the board from Build Back Better to the pandemic, to the Russia threat, half a dozen other issues that are prominent today. They actively don't want to understand what the arguments are on the other side because to understand them would be to introduce a nuance that allows you to, you, that forces you to treat these as human beings and not as flat one-dimensional caricatures that you can demonize and ignore. You know who was born in the Soviet Union? Gary Kasparov. You know, was born in the Soviet Union, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, was born in the Soviet Union. I mean, you know, Joseph Brodsky, like, what are we talking about here? Because she was born. It's not because she was born in the Soviet Union. It's because she's a commie. That's why. And if Democrats had wanted to spend their 51 votes voting, voting this commie into that, then fine, then they could have gotten her through. And mazel tov to them. Democrats didn't want to vote on this nomination and wisely. And the really interesting question is, how did she get there in the first place? Who who in personnel thought this was a good idea and why? What does that tell us about the priors and the focus and the process by which these decisions are being made by the people who are appointing these people? I mean, that's the interesting question. This is like red flag number one. She attended Moscow State University, and in 2011, she said the Soviet Union had many fine aspects to its economic system. That would be like, okay, eh, nah, so, uh, you know, go back to Cornell and, you know, enjoy yourself. Go to conferences, and you and uh, Piketty and, and Krugman can all have a nice conversation about the wondrous nature of, you know, five-year plans. And, See, and I, I still think she still could have survived the 2011 statement if she disavowed it in her hearings. People do that. I mean, but she of didn't. Course. She really believes this stuff. She's a true believer in these principles. Yeah. Well, she said, she said, I went to, I went to these schools and everything because that's, that's what there, what there was to do. And that would have been a, you know, that's why I went to Moscow State University. Like where else was I supposed to go then? And that's fine. But, um, you know, she she got a good apparently she got what she deems to be a very good education in solid redistributionist authoritarian top down thinking that, you know, is uh, it's it's delightful. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, by the way, the New York Times, I don't know that they're actively not understand. I think they understand perfectly. Um, they just they're just um, being shy about their sympathy. Oh, that's another way of saying they're lying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're right. lying I mean, to their audiences to preserve the idea that dialectical materialism actually is a thing that makes sense. Look, uh, they're, so they're, yeah, they're all lying. They're only lying. Too. They're only lying this time around because th this is also the paper that has run a series of articles over the past few years, sort of revisiting various issues under Soviet communism. Uh, maybe women. There are certain things about being a woman. What well, woman's sex life was better under uh, Soviet communism was yeah. one of them, and things and things like that. 
anyway, uh, it's, enjoy- it's, it's enjoyable. The reason that her nomination was withdrawn was because Democrats did not want to vote for it, not because Republicans wouldn't vote for it. Once again, just like just like that's how it works. They didn't want to vote for it, and they were right not to want to vote for it. And again, you want to know who made the nomination, who cleared it, why did this happen? We're never going to know because the reporters who are covering this administration are are inept, incompetent, or actively uh, uninterested in these sorts of questions, which are the stuff that actually makes for really good journalism, like the really good journalism over the past week about Kamala Harris and her staff. Um, there's a just to finish up on this, there's a piece in Politico about how there's now an all hands on deck effort to save the Kamala Harris vice presidency because it cannot be allowed to fail. So I guess they're going to like have a think tank and they're going to they're going to put, you know, because her vice presidency cannot be allowed to fail. And guess what? When you can't be allowed to fail, you've already failed because you either succeed or you fail. And she's failed. And I don't know. She could be the nominee. She could even be president, but probably not. Anyway, so with that, we will say goodbye until tomorrow for Abe Christina. No, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.